Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hello, and welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast, the place where we're talking about what is yoga? What is yoga beyond the mat? How does it work? How does it improve or change your life? How is it a whole lifestyle discipline? How you can deepen your personal practices and what strategies you can use to improve your life, increase your health and create wellness and craft a life that you truly love. We are going to get to the root of all these questions, not just in this episode, but in every episode. This is what we're focusing on is what creates a central crisis or a point of shifting or changing in someone's life and then how it blossoms and grows and changes and shifts from there. Um, today you're going to meet our guest Amy Priya who is a dear friend of mine. She and I have known each other for many many years. Um, we're going to be talking about dance and music and entering the flow state where you're not thinking about yourself or self-conscious. We're going to talk about mystic moments of consciousness and the evolution of a devotee, what it's like to have a guru or be a part of a conscious community uh, inside an ashram. So this is really, really interesting conversation. I hope that you um, are able to just immerse yourself in it. And we're also going to touch upon some interesting subjects like burning out, teaching Mysore style, Ashtanga yoga, and where to go from there. What happens um, if you burn out teaching Ashtanga yoga Mysore style? And if you, like me, are a multi-passionate wellness professional, yoga professional, um, and you're struggling or suffering from feeling burnt out right now, I want you to know you're not alone. You know, there's places you can go, people you can talk to that can help to restore your energy. And one of those places is coming and chatting with me. And I'm opening up uh, five new spots for coaching. Um, I would love if you would join me. What we're looking at doing is taking you from where you are right now, maybe struggling to find energy, struggling to connect to something that you used to love, to any sense of purpose or passion through the practice. Maybe you're feeling just a lack of enthusiasm, a lack of motivation. Maybe you're feeling stressed. Maybe there's some hidden stressors that we can identify together. And, you know, also when you're feeling burnt out and you're in a place where you're helping others feel better, there's a lot of shame that goes with it. And often there's a sense that you shouldn't be in the position that you're actually in. And so we're going to look at ways to let go of that shame to help you reconnect with your passion, with your purpose and your profession. Um, so you can head over to my website, harmonyslater.com. Click on coaching and apply now. There's a short application there that will get you thinking of some of the things that might be going on. Um, what are some of your strengths? What are the, some of the things that you're really struggling with right now that we can look at together that will help to direct and guide our conversation? 
and uh, we'll hop on a call. We'll have a conversation, a coaching conversation. And if it seems like something that you would like to um, continue and go into a little deeper, a little further, there's options for that. So um, I would just love to help you. It is my true passion. It is truly my purpose uh, to help you reconnect with your love of yoga and realizing that yoga isn't what your body looks like, what your body can do. It's not showing up on Instagram or social media, um, performing tricks, performing asanas, performing um, contortionistic flexibility. It is actually a part of your heart. It's a part of your lifestyle. It's a discipline of your mind. And yoga is actually about the mind. It's mind medicine. And when we're feeling burnt out and overwhelmed or feeling a lot of anxiety around things or even just, you know, depressed about the state of, of the world or the state of our lives or unsure, unclear, experiencing brain fog or whatever it is, whatever the, the um, emotional state is, you know, the tools, the practices of yoga can help to shift that, can help to change that. But what happens when you're no longer connecting with those tools in a positive way? How do you shift and change and um, heal your body or transform your mind, your thoughts, your thinking uh, when what used to work isn't working anymore? And that's really where coaching comes in. You know, how can I help you find new tools, new techniques, new practices that will either, you know, rekindle a love for what you used to do or, you know, start, enhance, create a new passion, a new love for seeing what yoga is and how it can improve your life and how you can use it to help the people who you're already helping, the people in your life, in your community, not just yourself, um, in a positive way, you know, how can you find these new tools and techniques? Maybe it's breath work, maybe it's um, a mantra, maybe it is actually just reframing some of the things that you're thinking and looking at and experiencing in your life. Maybe it is something completely unexpected, like um, changing a small, small aspect of your diet. Um, there's lots of different ways we can look at what's going on for you and look at how to shift it or tweak it to optimize your experience of yourself in your life, to create a deeper connection with your highest self, and then to rekindle a sense of excitement, a sense of exploration and curiosity and openness to what's coming next for you. Um, that's going to help to increase your vibration and also attract all those amazing things into your life that you want. So um, I love coaching. I think it has been absolutely transformative for me in my life. Um, you know, I practiced yoga for a long, long time without any connection to a Western teacher, really uh, no intimate connection to a Western teacher. I was just alone, home practicing or practicing in a studio, teaching my classes and being the teacher. And it can be a really, really lonely journey without a mentor, without a coach, without someone that you can connect with and talk to and explore some of these deeper struggles that you might be having that might be coming up for you. Um, you know, so I'm here for you. 
And without further ado, let's just jump into this conversation with Amy Priya, where we're going to look at a little bit of a glimpse of what the early scene of yoga was like in New York City. Again, sort of this origin of the Ashtanga yoga scene in North America. And then also what visiting Mysore in the late 90s, uh, the first shala, the Lakshmi Purushala was like. And then diving into spending time with the hugging saint, Amma. So stay tuned. Let's get ready to jump on in. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm thrilled that you're here today. I'm here with Russell Kay. Good morning, everyone. And the rock star, I guess maybe uh, grassroots country uh, folk, folky star. <laughs> Amy my, Priya. Um, Ate, my older sister. Yes. Mm. yes. Are we also Pinsan? Are we just uh, brother and sister? Oh, I don't know. We can be whatever you want to be, Russell. Yeah. <laughs> We're having a labelist conversation. Oh dear, with the labels again. <laughs> my uh, my stepmother is Filipino, and so yeah. um, step step not mother in law, stepmother, 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 and I have a little brother. I'm Kuya <laughs> to my little brother. Aww, yeah. Cute. So, Very cute. Um, I claim cousinship to all Filipino people. Of course, because we're all related. You know that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> and you grew up there, right? You grew up in the Philippines, Amy? Um, A little... My very, very earliest memories, my early childhood, yeah. I was born there in Manila. Yeah. But um, I lived there until I was about three. So okay. just the itty bit, just the very, very yeah. beginning. Mm -hmm. Have you been back? Um, yeah, I go actually back pretty regularly. I haven't been back since COVID, um, yeah. but I, I go back when the world was, quote, I guess, more normal, like yes. COVID. Um, I would go back usually like every two to three years, I think. Oh, yeah. Nice. Nice. I but your parents family moved? There. Yeah, your parents moved yes. here. Are they still yes. here? No, no, no. My, the no. notes say that um, Amy was raised in Jamaica. Oh. That, so that's not the United States. No, no, no. Jamaica. Oh, yes, it is the United States. So it was raised <laughs> no, in Jamaica, Queens. 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 Is that a thing? Jamaica, Jamaica Queens. Queens? Jamaica, Queens is a thing. Is that different <laughs> from the island in, in any way? Very probably. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can you describe That's the correct the... answer? If I said anything else, <laughs> live in Queens would be very upset with me. Can you describe for our listeners the differences between Jamaica the Island and Jamaica the Queens? Jamaica the Queens, yes, Jamaica the Queens <laughs> is a neighborhood in the Queens County of New York City. Mm -hmm. So, but I, I only lived there. Um, that's where when my parents emigrated. We originally lived, and mm -hmm. um, I was only there for approximately a year or so until um, we settled um, just a tiny bit north of um, of uh, New York City in um, Orange County, 
Orange oh. County. Oh, New that's York. in California. No. That's Orange one of my County, favorite TV shows, The OC. That's a great we, we show. We are basically going to just confuse everyone about <laughs> geography on this podcast. I'm constantly confused about American geography because there's so many towns named the same. It's true. In different parts of America. It is mm-hmm. co- like kind of a confusing place. Like Springfield. Yeah. There's a yeah. Springfield everywhere. Yeah. Or like yeah. Salem. How, how <laughs> nice it must have been to settle in a place and you'd say, I'm going to name this Springfield. That must have been really know. nice. People liked it. Can you describe um, the orange? The like There must be like orange groves in Orange County. What is that um, like growing up? Oh, no. I have no idea why they named it Orange County. <laughs> I have no clue. Definitely no orange groves there. There's a good amount of apple orchards, so perhaps they just oh. got confused. Yeah. It's the, the beautiful fall color. Yes, it is very beautiful up there. Actually, um, now that, you know, in hindsight, now that I don't live there anymore and I live in, you know, a very urban environment, um, it's amazing to go back up there and just actually really understand how beautiful it is. Mm. It's very beautiful. This is the time of the year to be there, I think. Were you you nestled into a a Filipino community in Orange County or were you quite, were you different? Oh, no, I was very, very different. Um, I think the area's changed quite a bit since Mm -hmm. I grew up there. Um, But when I was there, it was not the most diverse area in the world at all. Um, The Asian population was minimal. Very, very mm-hmm. minimal. In fact, like, um, like, a, a, just in general, like the population of any sort of immigrant population, people of color was very small, mm-hmm. very, very small. Mm-hmm. Again, I believe, you know, I don't live there. I haven't lived there for decades, but it's changed <laughs> quite considerably since then. Um, a lot of New Yorkers have sort of like eventually ended up there, especially recently. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the area is changing um, for the better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I would definitely say for sure, in my opinion. Um, but yes, it was very different when I grew up there. Uh, did your family speak Tagalog? Uh, yes. Um, the way it kind of worked in my kind of immediate household was um, my parents pretty much spoke Tagalog exclusively with each other. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, they tended to speak English to us. That was their kind of first initial right. kind of like contact was always to kind of speak English to us. And I'm not sure exactly. I'd have to ask them why they made that decision. Um, wow. I think perhaps it was to just kind of like really integrate their children into um, American culture and really learn how to speak English well. Um, (laughs) But, you know, whenever they wanted to say something that they didn't want anyone else to understand, of course, they would speak to us in Tagalog too. Oh, wow. Mom would, my mom would leave us if she had to go out and leave us notes on the door of the house, she would always write them in Tagalog. We could all read them, but like anybody else who came to our front door, like, I have know. no idea. The, yeah. the encyclopedia salesman, you know, they had those things back in those days and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. The back door is open. Witnesses. Yeah, <laughs> let yourself in. They couldn't yeah. read the sign. Mm. Only their yeah. kids could read the sign. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. But, that's yeah. fun. Yeah. yeah. And you did all of your schooling there. I pretty much did um, all of my um, K through high school there. Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. I was the only sibling that did that. All oh. of my brothers and sisters um, are older than me, and they were schooled partially in the Philippines and partially in the States. So, oh, wow. But I, yeah. I'm the little one. I'm bringing up the rear. And so yeah. <laughs> I actually, yeah, I was so young when we moved here that I grew up completely and schooled completely here in the States. Yeah, you're basically a New Yorker. Oh yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you could give our give us a, a picture of Amy as a as a ten year old in Orange County and like what did what were you into? What did you like doing? What if people found you in the house or found you where what would you be doing? That's fun interesting that you mentioned that specific year because that year was actually, I don't know, I think probably um of I would say that perhaps aside from moving from the Philippines to the States, that was probably my next most quote significant year. Cause uh, when I was 10 years old, I found dance. Oh, um, nice. Yeah. So that was the first year that I started actually like studying any sort of dance forms, like formally. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that pretty much steered the direction for the rest of my life. I'd say. Mm. yeah 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 movement and that connection uh-huh. to the body and uh-huh. yeah and what music kind of, as well and music yeah yeah it's a beautiful integration of both those those passions of yours was that like a an hour after school or three hours after school like every day like that's what that was your life then well i think it started small mm-hmm. and then but it escalated quickly Let's yeah. Um, I think it was. Reminds me of my drug use. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, it was it was definitely like I you know, I mean I can we can allude to this as far as like my practice as well. But you know it was kind of, you know I was in a whether I knew it or not I think I was in a, a little bit of a search mode at that point mm-hmm. trying to find something. Um, I didn't sports did not resonate with me at all when mm-hmm. I was young. Um, uh, the competitive aspect of sports um, was just such a turn off to me. Um, and I knew immediately I didn't fit into that kind of a mold, mm-hmm. which was very challenging um, where I grew up. Uh, but uh, and I needed, I think, to find and my parents probably also probably thought this in the back of their heads too, that I needed a physical outlet. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so this finally provided me with something like that, mm-hmm. um, which, uh, and it was much more of a, uh, kind of like a bonding kind of physicality as opposed to like, you know, a team A, team B kind of right. physicality Rivalry. and that, <laughs> that really resonated with me. Um, mm-hmm as a little one. And, um, so yes, when I found it and I got very excited and passionate about it, I think my my parents were pretty amazing. They were very, very supportive of it Mm -hmm. and sort of just kind of like really fed me into it as much as I wanted to. So yes, it escalated quickly. (laughs) (laughs) And did you want to become like a professional dancer? Was that like your dream when you were kind of growing up? Sure. When I was little, definitely. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I didn't really ever think I was going to find anything else that would excite me in as much as dancing. Um, mm-hmm. so I pursued that for quite a while. 
many, many mm-hmm. years, like into my teens and like even into my early twenties as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was a pretty huge part of my life in the early, early goings. Yeah. You know, I sometimes feel like we don't give children uh, enough credit for um, these kind of uh, profound choices that they make or, or even um, say, mystic experiences that they they might be having that maybe they don't share with us or maybe they don't quite understand and it just reminds me that when I, when I was in the fourth grade they had introduced a yoga class to our school and I think I was in Illinois that year and I had like these kind of profound experiences just staring at the wall or staring at the ceiling during the yoga class and I was like this is really incredible can could you point to something at that time that that um, explains your current position as a, you know, as a fellow mystic. <laughs> oh boy. I'm trying to put myself in, in like a, my 10 year old self and in my <laughs> shoes. Um, it could be a 12 year old self. I don't know. I mean, I just, um, I think, uh, when I, I think kind of in early days, um, I think I was able to discover and understand early on that I wasn't like other kids that I was growing up with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really think I could um, pinpoint exactly why until I was a little bit older. But mm-hmm. I had that sense, that feeling that I was different. And um because of that, I think, and I was just, you know, I was very young and just developing, obviously, in so many ways. Um, I was very self-conscious, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And um, just kind of like about how I looked, you know, how I presented yeah. myself, what I said, mm-hmm. etc., And how I reacted to things, people and mm-hmm. situations. I was very, very sensitive to that. Um, but I felt like when I was dancing, especially like once I kind of had that kind of sense of being able to um, kind of not focus specifically on technique, but just kind of dance, I guess, quote, on my own terms. Mm -hmm. um, It was kind of the only time I was able to completely let go. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And just kind of just exist, so to speak, and not worry in the back of my head about, you know, what other people were thinking. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that, I guess, there you go, that would be my first kind of little um, kind of taste of this whole idea of, um, you know, like, the subconscious level of things and what Mm -hmm. it's like to exist on that plane, as opposed to Mm -hmm. just like, being down there with like all these other people, you know. Yeah. Like yeah. a kind of flow state and an awareness yeah. of being in a flow state. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you bring that up. It's it's interesting. I haven't thought about that for a long time, but that element of um like when you're you're performing as a dancer, there's like a little bit of a disassociation with your personality. Absolutely. And so yeah. it's like a What does that mean? It's just like you don't have a personality. There's no you really. It's like that first sort of experience of of there is no you like there's no identity there there's just like the movement and the moment and Mm. and like the music and the 
just like yeah it is a flow state it's like the what is it the pcc is that what it is it is yeah that yeah, part of your brain off. is completely off and so and the mm. moment if it does switch on if you are like oh i wonder you know if you start thinking about yourself and become self-conscious then it's like that's when you like make a mistake or something like you know mm-hmm. you get like off off um off beat or the, that's the moment that things pos- kind of get disrupted so you really learn to like not allow that mm-hmm. self-consciousness to enter at all because you know that's like not helpful the posterior mm-hmm. cortical cortex yeah it's uh it's the uh the eye center where mm-hmm. you, if it's on you feel self-conscious mm-hmm. and if it's off you're in a in a flow. And so then it's like super liberating, right? Because it is like the one time you're completely disassociated from your personality mm-hmm. and self-consciousness. But at the same time, yeah. which it's the poetic thing is like you're still somehow also very embodied, obviously, yes. because yes. you're using your body as a vehicle yeah. for this thing. Yeah. And also, um, but yeah, I mean, like you said, when you are able to get into that place, that's when the best performances happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, like where you just kind of get out of that whole kind of ego state. And mm-hmm. it's interesting just talking about it, how ridiculously parallel it is to a yoga practice, mm. like a solid, like. Like a really good one. Or <laughs> yoga practice. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I never yeah, wow. I didn't really like make that connection in in quite that direct way before. So it was mm-hmm. cool listening yeah. to you describe that cuz I was like, yeah, that is actually something that that I mean is maybe unique at a young age to have mm-hmm. those experiences, right? Where where you do have that actual like space and time of of being like immersed in your body with your breath, with music, with the moment, with the mm-hmm. movement like and not feeling like any sense of of self really, mm-hmm. which right. is fascinating. Yeah, I was also I having think... those experiences in in, in football as mm. well, where I can oh, I can, can see, see the yeah. personality turn off. I'm moving, but without making choices. Mm-hmm. I'm observing mm. without yeah. making judgments, and then I'm acting without choosing to act. Mm-hmm. And you know, say I'm like a when I was like a middle linebacker, and I'm tracking a running back through the line and then I saw the gap and went for it and and tackled it was all without self Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. those in this conversation is just kind of bringing me right back into that that Mm -hmm. moment of of consciousness it's really wonderful Mm. it's exciting when you can find stuff like that I mean it's definitely like not exclusive to any one thing i think Mm -hmm. it's just a matter of finding each particular person's jam your thing (laughs) and you know and integrating it into your lives it can be art or again like you said sports for some people Mm -hmm. yeah and Mm -hmm. so like anything like that i mean i think any kind of a uh outlet that people get like super passionate about yeah. obviously has that element that that up uh, that possibility of getting to that place mm-hmm. so yeah even yeah. like that expression like losing yourself in it right right it's yeah. like kind of exactly. embodying that what we're talking about that space of like not having an attachment to your sense of self yeah mm-hmm. yeah 
so it's exciting. Yeah. It just like thinking about our, our son as well. Like he's, uh, I've claimed him as, as my child. Um, our, he's uh, just joined the, uh, the elite parkour team, the breathe elite team. And so nice. he's like, he's having like a, a host of experiences there that he's not able to articulate, yeah. but he's just become a super passionate person for this thing. He's 11. And so like mm-hmm. something's happening there. There you go. Yeah. I think it's, if you can't articulate it, I think that definitely is a a good sign that it's it's affecting you in a very, very kind of deep other layer kind of a way. Yeah. Yeah. And he also has taken up the bass guitar as the first step to doing the stand-up bass, which is something that you do, right? That's something that I do indeed. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, well, I started I started with an electric as well. Um, not as early as he did. Yeah. But um I, I started with an electric, oh god, I don't know how many years ago now it's been. It's gotta be at least like fifteen, close to twenty mm-hmm. years ago. And then the stand-up sort of evolved over time as um I guess music, the music that we were listening to, me and my partner, um, or listening to sort of evolved over time and the music we started making started evolving over time. Um, The stand-up bass sort of integrated itself kind of very organically into the sound. So, and now, you know, I can't imagine living without it. I can't imagine playing without it. We were actually just in California doing a series of um, performances and I, I did not bring the stand-up bass with me. Um, but uh, so I used an electric and it was still a really amazing trip, but I missed it almost immediately. So uh, yeah, we, such we were, a rich sound. It's so, yeah. Yeah. it is we a were, very different kind of instrument to play. So yeah. we were watching a, a documentary on Miles Davis mm-hmm. on Netflix. I think it was. Yeah. And Ron Carter was was being interviewed about his relationship yeah. to Miles, mm-hmm. and um, Miles had come to him uh, right at the Bitches Brew creation mm-hmm. of that album, and he said, "Hey, maybe Ron, you can you can you can do the electric bass." And um, <laughs> Ron is is talking to the camera, and he's saying. Miles, I've been dealing with this same shit since I was 18, man. <laughs> it's the it's not it 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 doesn't sound the same, it doesn't feel the same. Nothing's the same about it. It it's got the same fucking notes, Miles, <laughs> and I'm out of this fucking band. <laughs> and it was like, "Oh, I love it. I love it. I want to show this to Jed." Well, I got to <laughs> say that like, you know, I mean, that I appreciate that commitment to like be able to say no to Miles Davis. That's pretty uh, right. <laughs> right. I know. That's what I was like. Wow, he's like super committed. Fuck you, Miles. I'm a fan, but I think I'm even more of a fan now. So. Yeah. <laughs> my um my mentor in college introduced me to to Ron Carter, and they were they were good friends. It was a guy, um, Professor William T. Williams at Brooklyn College, and they were he was um part of that. Um, I don't know what I what I, what you would call it, but they were within a, a a cohort of of black excellence, I guess you could call it. And they were mm-hmm. they're really close friends, and he was always passing me these Ron Carter albums, and like you should listen to this. This is great. <laughs> and one one day I I found a um, 
what's your name? Uh, Roberta Flack vinyl album nice. on the street mm-hmm. of Brooklyn. Someone just oh, left nice. out vinyl on the street. Oh my goodness. In two, in like 2000, nobody gave a shit about vinyl that year, you know? Right, right. <laughs> and, that's I, true. and I brought back this Roberta Flack album to, to Bill Williams. And I said, Ron Carter is the basis for this entire album. He's uh-huh. all over this, man. It's awesome. Yeah. It's like. Mm. <laughs> He's legendary. Yeah. 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 So did you, um, you start, got into music like quite a bit after you had sort of like ha- dancing had sort of you'd transitioned out of it already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like for the most part, um, mm-hmm. you know, like I kind of kind of transitioned from moving out of dance as like my quote primary focus. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually transitioned basically from dance as my primary focus to yoga as my primary focus. Right. Yeah. How did that happen? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. And why Uh, did it happen? Yeah. Why did it happen? Um, Well, I think it was mostly, um, to be completely frank, just being really tired of the hustle for Mm. the dance. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's just, you know, it's simple economics here in, I mean, not just even New York, but everywhere. I think there are too many dancers looking for work as there is work. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, it was, you know, it was absolutely worth it. And, you know, I, if I had a chance to do it all again, I would do it all again in a heartbeat. But after a while, like, you know, it just became to the point where like, yeah, I've been trying and doing for quite some time and I felt like it was time to do something else, to focus somewhere else. And, um, just kind of fortuitously, I, that was specifically like the trigger that was right where around the time that I found Ashtanga yoga. And how old were of, you then? I was like in my late twenties. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's like, a long dance career. Yeah. Yeah. For, I guess, well, I don't know. Some of my dancer friends would definitely disagree at this point, considering how old I am now. And they say, mm. Oh, you can dance for the rest of your life. I have several people who are, you know, at the same age as me that, um, you know, are still dancing. Um, yeah. and, um, they're still incredible performers. Uh, but you know, I mean, we all have our own path and our journey mm-hmm. and some people take more branches than others. Um, but, um, you know, like, that's that's life um some people just follow one big trunk all the way to the top so and those are my dancer friends who are still performing Mm -hmm. uh but uh yeah I mean I just yeah it just I'm kind of person that like if it feels right I just kind of go with it and so I just kind of went with the yoga because it felt right and Mm -hmm. um you know I never had any intention of teaching or anything I just loved my practice and then it just sort of again sort of like dance it just kind of escalated quickly <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i uh, i, I want to i have two questions I, i've got so many questions for you honestly but <laughs> i wanted to know first um if the your first yoga class was like a lot of folks in new york at that time if you had just walked into a jiva mukti program Mm, yeah. Well, first, uh, the, my very, very first yoga class ever was at a dance studio. Yeah. Um, 
I, uh, you know, like back then in those days, like they were actually teaching yoga and dance studios. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really think they do that much anymore. But um, uh, yeah, I was just, um, I was taking, I think like a Lamone class and I was just kind of running around. I loved this studio downtown in, in downtown Manhattan. And I was just spending lots of time there. And um, I just found yoga on the schedule. And I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. I've always kind of been curious about this and maybe I should just take a class. And I just remember it being really ridiculously hard. And I like mm. left exhausted and shaking. And I was just outrageously sore, like from head to toe the next day. But, you know, like, I don't know. I just really loved it. Somehow. Yeah. I think I, I kind of appreciate that, that the challenge of it mm-hmm. without feeling pressure. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I took it for a while and I, I, I tried many kinds of yoga back then. Like it was a pretty low key, mellow yoga class. Like not, you know, I, I, I tried yoga originally pre yoga boom in New York. Yeah. You yeah. Know? yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah I think, I think that's true for the three of us. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, it's still uh, you know, thing. It, it was just kind of a thing that but I. It was also an old-fashioned thing that yeah. our aunts and uncles did. It's yeah, not something that, yeah. Not something that. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed kind of like hippy dippy a little right. bit, but yeah. like interesting. I was interested, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I like the '60s. I like you know, like the whole yeah. like psychedelic yeah. culture. I was very yeah. intrigued by that kind of thing, and that's the like the first thing I ever knew about yoga beyond just like actual physical postures was. All stuff like you know, um, Tim Leary and yeah. you know, like Ram Das and all that yeah. kind of stuff. So yeah. you know, I was interested. So yeah, yeah. My mom up. had "Be Here Now" in her library of yeah. books in the house, so I grew up with "Be Here Now," and of mm-hmm. course, the photos are like not Incredible. the photos, the drawings, drawings are, yeah. <laughs> are so like intriguing you know uh-huh. and, and very like alluring you know even uh-huh. for a yeah. child it's it's sure. interesting yeah. it's like so one would, big like yeah. illustrated book you know yeah. like for a kid that's the first thing you would want to like you latched onto are the pictures yeah. So yeah. it's just a bunch of pictures. Exactly. And so I was like, so in it. I was like, this is yeah. amazing. Like, yeah. I don't know what this is, but I love this. Yeah. Just like my, my mom's Joy of Sex book. Yeah. I was like, I don't know what this is, but I love the pictures. This is a, so great and so hippy dippy. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I all my we also we didn't have menorahs in the house. We had we did have a Christmas tree because we were those those kind of Jews. And okay. but we had Buddhas. There was Buddhas in the house oh, everywhere. Okay. And it's just, it was like the the last remnants of of that decade were mm-hmm. still like here in bits and pieces in the eighties. And then like oh yeah, yoga. That's probably for me. <laughs> I I wanted to ask. Um. So did you eventually end up? I, I know that you must eventually ended up at Jiva Mukti. And I'm just wondering if, if if Lisa <laughs> Schramp was a friend of yours oh, in, in dance yes. before or oh, when okay. you got to Jiva Mukti? No, I actually, um, so I basically, I cycled through like different phases of Jiva Mukti. I originally found Jiva Mukti when I was also living in the East Village on in the, its Second Avenue incarnation. That was right. my first kind of like connection to them and where I started getting very excited about practicing there. Um, I, uh, 
I, that's the first time I ever did Kirtan with Krishna Das was on wow. Second Avenue. I think there were like 10 people in the room. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was I love fun. that. It's so great, yeah. right? Because yeah. you think of Krishna Das and you're like, oh, he plays to like, you know, stadiums almost yeah, at this exactly. point. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I it just, you know, I've, I loved it. Again, it was the same thing. Like I'd sort of, it, time things had evolved over time, but um Again, I really appreciated that kind of very supportive energy combined with the challenge. And that was Mm. really amazing to me. Um, And then, you know, like I sort of like kept and sort of kept on with Jiva Mukti and followed them when they expanded to Lafayette Avenue. Um, And that was like kind of my last really... um, kind of deepest connection with Jiva Mukti um, mm-hmm. uh, was there. That's where I started my Mysore practice. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and uh, I had actually my very first trip to Mysore. Um, cool. I was still practicing there. I was still practicing Mysore there. What um, year was that? It was 1999, I believe. Right. Okay. I'm terrible with dates, but. Like, again, I'm pretty good with, like, remembering very important moments in my life, my Mm -hmm. life. And, and yeah, I'm almost sure it was 1999. Because I think that's when I I started to become aware of you was 2000. I was really, um, I'm going to say enamored, but not, like, sexually. But I was, like, really fascinated by Guta, who was a dear friend of yours. Uh Yeah, yeah. And Guta and you were, I think, teaching a Meister program at Crunch Gym. Yeah, and I thought Guta was amazing, and I just like I, I she was practicing next to us and also teaching us at Guy's place. Mm-hmm. That's and right. I thought, mm-hmm. And then I would keep hearing, yeah, like, oh, I work, yeah, Amy Priya and I have a thing, and it's like, wow, and like had a thing, it had a thing, yeah, we had a thing, yeah. What we was that thing? Together. Yeah. Um, well, so uh, yeah, so it, to answer your previous question, Lisa and I met at Jiva Mukti. Okay. You know, I, I'm sorry. I I started um, taking her class, and then also like eventually like getting to know her more because of the whole Mysore community that was there, and that's how mm-hmm. I re- initially met Lisa. Um, uh, as far as Guta and I go, back in the day, it feels like a whole other lifetime ago, honestly. <laughs> yeah. But there was an incredible program at for of all places, the Crunch Gym system yeah. Yeah. um and they had a uh, an incredible yoga program that was specifically based at one of their studios in soho right. and they had a, a beautiful studio expressly for yoga and um programmed it in an incredible way with many amazing amazing teachers that i won't name names now but if you if i could everybody be like, Oh, that teacher, that teacher right. is like mm-hmm. really incredible teachers that who really become very um, well-respected and well-known over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all teaching there and they somehow in this really incredible sea of classes offered a Mysore program. Mm-hmm. So I inherited it. Um, I was not the first teacher, but like several like really amazing Ashtanga teachers had taught through it. And that I ended up eventually becoming one of the teachers for that program. Mm. Um, and Guta and I for several years 
shared the program. We were both quite busy with other things and mm -hmm. we both couldn't teach a full-time MISO program. So, and we had known each other over the years and we had become friends. And um, so we shared it for several years um, mm. before that studio eventually um, was closed. Yeah. Amazing. So you had like started at Jiva Mukti, got involved with the community there, the Mysore program that inspired you to go to India. You're practicing in the old Shala with Patabi Joyce and Sharad and all the, all the people, all the, you know, <laughs> with the stairs and all the, the hanging yes. out on those stairs. <laughs> and then, I love uh, those stairs. Yeah. <laughs> Bring your book. Yeah. And then you, uh, how long were you there for? Um, in Mysore? Yeah, your first trip. The very first time, yeah. I think it was three months. I went okay. during Dasara and it was pretty oh, amazing. Yeah. 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 Did you, were you like completely enthralled with India? Was it like your first time really yes. in that kind of environment? <laughs> I don't yes. know what to call I it. Mean, I mean, I, it was um it was a very special time i'm so grateful still like every single time i think about it i am so grateful that i had a few years there in that yeah. kind of environment that space it um means the world to me mm. um but uh uh yes i got i kind of again same thing like it escalated quickly <laughs> <laughs> i fell in love with the place because and i honestly feel like Part of it was because I was in that environment. I was able to kind of practice so wholeheartedly and deeply in specifically in Lakshmi Purim. Mm -hmm. But also um, I had these incredible guides um, that uh, people that I lived with that very first trip and that, that made all the difference in the world. I had um, Kate Donovan and Ronna Harris were my roommates mm -hmm. and nice. they both knew India very well and they're very, very passionate about it and had been to Mysore and done the Mysore thing previously. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I just was able to find my way and quote, find my people very quickly. Yeah. It made, I, I it was, made a huge difference. I was Amazing. just about to use that phrase, find my people. It was in my head and I was thinking about how to, how to put it into a sentence because I was thinking about how so many of us had kind of come out of a, a punk artistic ethos where you're kind of doing it yourself, you're making it yourself, you're kind of a little bit counterculture. And then so many of us kind of become immersed into our people and into a culture and into a community that's very tightly bound and into the same thing. Did that, did that ever... Um, uh, was that ever abrasive being in that community or did you feel like completely uh, situated? Um, well, I feel like in general, um, the kind of that whole idea of connecting to a community has been a huge part of my life um, beyond just like the whole idea of like blood family that you're kind of born into, like a community mm -hmm. that you're born into, like finding I think, and I think a lot of that has to do for me is going back to what we were talking about earlier, um, knowing when I was very young that I was very different. Mm -hmm. And I guess not being able to, I guess, figure out where I fit in mm -hmm. when I was young, the fact that I would able to latch onto any sort of community anywhere 
where I was kind of interacting and being supported by like-minded people was like a huge, has a huge impact on me, whether that be dance or yoga or just, you know, I don't know, just my neighbors, Mm -hmm. (laughs) anything like that. You know, it just, it makes a huge difference to me um, to be able to have that. Um, It's very, very important. I guess I asked the question because we just we just watched a show and it's uh, about uh, the the vow and about Enixium. You probably know they're in, like in your area. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's, so it's in my it's in our heads. It's percolating right now. And so right around this time, two thousand five, I think for for all of us, may, and I'm asking for you as well, but certainly for Harmony and I, our parents started to become a little bit concerned. Mm, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what are you involved in that you've got to spend tens of thousands of dollars to go to India each <laughs> and do this? And why are you putting all of your other dreams to one side to do this thing? Are you in a cult? And and um, I don't know if I can still answer that question. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. I mean, I think. I don't know. I feel like, I don't know if you've actually gotten to that place in your kind of parenting experience, but I kind of feel like every parent probably has this kind of thought about their child about something at some point, you know, like, you know, like just the whole kind of, I, 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 I can't, but I don't know if I want to get into my parents' head about like things like, when I told them I became a vegetarian, like that right. was pretty really traumatic. That was a very traumatic experience big, for my parents. Yeah. Um, uh, now it's like, whatever. I mean, I really yeah. feel like my mom thought I was going through a phase, um, yeah. Right. Yes. but now it's, you know, like a 30 plus year phase. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so I think she's accepted it at this point. Yeah. Um, so, and yeah, I think that, it's normal for people you care about to be concerned when you get swept away by something. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, I think that honestly, if like you can kind of back it up with practical information, like you can actually teach a yoga class or Mm -hmm. whatever. And, you know, like actually make it a career or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. It creates a little bit of, kind of like kind of normal world validity to yeah. it. Yeah, normalized. Um, mm-hmm. So instead of like, you know, as, as opposed to like somebody who's just, you know, like basically going to India and then coming back and borrowing more money and then going back to India <laughs> and everything, then maybe they are in a cult. I'm not really sure. Yeah, it's um, interesting, isn't it? But yeah, I think if you can stay kind of somehow true to your um, your life goals and needs, Mm-hmm. I think any kind of pursuing of any passion is valid. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as far as the kind of negative aspects of it, um, I don't think I'd be doing it this long if I found too much negativity. Like I'm definitely mm-hmm. one of those people that doesn't like being too uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like I feel like, yes, if I'm still here, then I'm still getting benefit from it. Um, mm-hmm. um, I obviously, as I've mentioned in the past, uh, you know, like if I feel like I need to like take the other fork and then I'll just take it because it, if it feels right. Um, 
So, yeah, um, I think it can, your relationship to those, um, that community and like Mm -hmm. that practice or whatever it is you're doing can evolve over time. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I said, as long as it's working for you, then, you know, I, 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 I'm, I think I'm a pretty loyal person. I think the first time I met you, Amy, you were, it was in Mysore and I think you had, you were either on your way or had just come back from Amma's ashram in oh, Southern yes. India. Uh-huh. So, you, so speaking of something that there's <laughs> a charismatic of, personality oh, yeah. and like a yes. little like, huh. <laughs> and I yeah. loved Amma. I've, I've been to, to her, her meetings in Mysore or Bangalore when she came. Mm-hmm. If I was in, in that area and she came through, I was there 100%. Um, but what, how did you get involved with Amma's whole community and, and how has that sort of connection to that community evolved over the years for you? Yeah. So, um, I originally met Amma in New York on (laughs) one of her tours. Um, yeah. And I, every time I I think about that, I get sad of what has happened over the last few years. Um, but, um, but she hasn't because because she hasn't been able to tour. Um, yeah. but, oh, I see. Uh, uh, basically, um, yeah, I met her at a small church on the Upper West Side. Again, wow. all of these like I met these people when it was tiny. This is so yes. all dating me very well, yeah. but that's okay. I, I um, saw Talking Heads at CBGBs, and there's <laughs> people there. And, yeah. <laughs> It's fine. Those are great experiences. So I don't mind being old in this particular case. Um, And um, yeah, I was just very kind of, it didn't like happen as quickly for me with Amma. I was very intrigued by her. I had heard from her, I think, from someone in Jivamukti. I think it was um, Amala, Betsy Barnett. Um, She was a friend of mine from Jivamukti, one of the teachers there. And she's a... um, um, just like a very, very dedicated devotee of Amas. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I went to go check it out and I loved the music first and foremost. Yeah. That was the big thing. I was very oh. just kind of enchanted by the bhajans and the music, um, mm-hmm. which is a huge part of her whole experience. And, you know, I got a hug and that felt really nice. Um, mm. But I think my relationship with Amma really kind of hit its fever pitch and where I got really involved was again when I first time I went to her ashram in India. Mm-hmm. What year was, was that? Huge, oh, I don't know. I, that I don't think I can remember exactly, but mm-hmm. it was probably around 2001, 2002, I think, mm-hmm. something like that, a couple years yeah. into Maybe, my uh... India experience. Because yeah. you're talking about the ashram, maybe just for some of our listeners who may not know who Amaji is, maybe you could set up sure. who and why she's well known. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, Ama Mata Amritanandanayat Mai, she is a um, an Indian spiritual teacher. She lives in Kerala in South India. She has her ashram there. And I think, I guess the way that most people know of her is she's the hugging saint. So that's what people call her. Um, so the way that she receives her devotees is, um, she basically, um, hugs each of them individually mm-hmm. and the hugs are feel, you know, run the range from like <laughs> the experiences of being like very nice or basically 
transformative in a way that is like really just healing and powerful to people. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, aside from all of this, this really lovely, sweet experience that you can have with her, like it is a, as, as a direct transmission. Mm -hmm. Um, she has, um, you know, hundreds of charities that she runs like hospitals, um, orphanages, um, all over the world. She has mm -hmm. branches all over the world, not just in India, but also here in the States and Europe, everywhere. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's a giant, um, charitable organization, a worldwide yeah. charitable organization. Mm -hmm. So, um, and yeah, she's still doing that today. It looks a little mm -hmm. different today without lots of hugs post COVID. Yeah, but, um, that's right. oh. yeah, that's so yeah. fascinating that's... how that must've affected yeah. things a little bit. Um, but um, yeah, like she's still doing everything. There's a lot of things that can be done virtually. I actually mm -hmm. did a little bit of a, a yoga course virtually during COVID mm. and that was fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she's always doing like talks and her senior teachers are also doing talks yeah. online these days. And uh, hopefully soon, I, I'm, there's a lot of optimism for next year that a lot of things will start to be able to be done in person again. Mm. It does sound like you've had very positive experiences and the whole, the whole organization for you around AMA has been benevolent. Yes, for the most part, absolutely. Um, you know, I think as far as like, you know, things that are maybe not less than ideal, um, I would probably generalize this across the board, not just with AMA or, mm -hmm. or just even like the Ashtanga community in general. Um, you know, I think that most people that become spiritual seekers originally come to it because there's some sort of something happening in their lives, which requires some sort of healing. Yeah. Um, because they're broken in, in some way, whether it be like very badly broken or just a little bit broken. <laughs> That's the name of a song from one of my favorite bands. A little bit broken. <laughs> um, so, um, but I think that like, uh, you know, like seekers basically like, you know, it implies something. So, um, and that's why people come to any sort of spiritual practice. And, um, when you're dealing with a lot of people and a community, it's really amazing because you can get, again, lots of support and, um, lots of energy from that place, mm -hmm. but it can also, you know, like when people are kind of in progress, people are, are works in progress, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes, you know, like a lot of feelings and experiences and emotions also can get in the way, mm -hmm. um, for which can also be negative too. And I think that, but I think that's all part of it. I think you have to learn how to deal with the bad as well as the good in order to evolve in any sort of a way. Um, that's, it's not life to just be all like flowers and like, jasmine flowers being kind of tossed at you all the time you know like mm -hmm. yeah hard stuff bad stuff not necessarily like those are there also to yeah. kind of make you learn and teach you lessons 
So, mm-hmm. um, well, I th- you know, I think that's the Ashtanga yoga practice at, at its core is that you're uh-huh. experiencing um, an emotional difficulty mm-hmm. in a posture yeah. and training yourself to breathe in response to discomfort. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you take that to the rest of the, the your rest of your life, the rest of the world. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when so. you were staying at Amma's ashram, what was what was your typical day like there? I mean, most people don't go to these ashrams, so okay. can you yeah describe right. what it was so, like? A typical day. All right. So um, getting up very early, which for Ashtanga yogis would be just like ugh. Normal. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, but I would get up around like probably like around 3.30 or so. So yeah. like for Anishinaabe, no big deal. Yeah. Right. But maybe for the rest of the world, that sounds crazy. Yeah. Well, um, in India, it gets quite hot. And so 3.30 <laughs> yes, is a nice time to get some yeah. stuff done. Yeah. <laughs> so just uh, wake up, usually bathe. And then the first thing that happens at the ashram is um, something called archana, which is basically like a very kind of, long ritualistic uh chanting session Mm -hmm. with different chants Mm -hmm. um and then uh after that we usually have tea Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then after some tea i usually would um there's always a little bit of like downtime in between where you can do different things i would do my um ashtanga practice Mm -hmm. after that um and do that for a couple of hours and then breakfast Mm-hmm. After breakfast, usually um, some sort of um, seva or karma right. yoga, sometimes yeah. they call it, some volunteer surface, which usually has to do usually with cleaning yeah, or it's just in the working ashram, yeah. in, the, uh, in the ashram mm-hmm. yeah, or yeah. working at the cafe, right. something like that. Yeah. You know, do that for a few hours. And then it's usually around that after that time, it's usually lunch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So lunch, um, which is usually just some sambar and rice. Yeah. Um, and then the afternoon is usually um, a period of time where people like spread out and do different projects. So like mm-hmm. if you're attending a course, mm-hmm. like a meditation course or something like that, you would go do that in the afternoons. Um, it tended to be like lots of more indoor activities at that time of the day because it was so hot. Yeah. Um, or you could also do more volunteer work at that time. Um, sometimes I would set that up that time to like read or study mm-hmm. things like that, quieter activities. Mm-hmm. And then in the evening, there was a big, uh, kirtan session, mm-hmm. uh, where we would do a bunch of bhajans and Amma would come and mm-hmm. we would oh, all man. meet together and she would lead that whole thing, all the bhajans, as well as, um, uh, talk, meditation. It was like several hours we would spend together in the evening. Nice. And then that's the first time would, you would see her that day. Is the evening? Um, that- not always. Sometimes we would do meditation with her, but not every day. Sometimes mm-hmm. we would have there would be like public darshan where she would like take people from the village and like traveling people, and she would mm-hmm. do darshan and hugs with them like in the afternoon or something. Um, and we could volunteer for that. So mm-hmm. like it, the, the beginnings of the days and the end of the days tended to be about the same. Yeah. They were bookmarked in like book ended in those two tasks. And then the middle of the days would sometimes change from day to day. 
Yeah. Um, and then that was the end of the day was um, the evening sessions. And some people would eat. Some people would just go to sleep um, <laughs> or do, just do quiet things. After. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah. That's a typical day at the ashram. Yeah. Wow. And how long would you stay? It would vary. Um, sometimes I would stay like a month at a time. Sometimes I would stay just like a week. Mm -hmm. um, they pretty much let you stay however long you want, I think, within reason. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I think the longest I ever stayed was probably about six weeks. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And was it all by donation? Yes. they. Um, everything's by donation. Um, if you stay there, there's like a suggested donation. Um, if you're like going to have a bed and, and actually stay there and live there for a bit. Um, but I don't think they really ever turn anyone away if mm -hmm. you can't really afford to stay. Yeah. Again, I'm not really sure what the COVID protocols are now. Might yeah, have yeah, a that's, bit. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but back in the yeah. day when I was going there and traveling there a lot, um, you know, there were a lot of people. A lot yeah. of people, a lot of personalities. Yeah, it was always yeah. kind of an experience in many different ways to be there. I, I think you also know my friend uh, Tanya Latinen, who is also an Amaji devotee. Devotee, uh huh. Yeah. Uh, devotee. I don't know how to pronounce that word. Um, <laughs> I, th I mean, I as as a kind of a shtangi friend where you might have really known someone really well for a short period of time. You know, I, I think um, I knew Tanya really well 20 years ago, um, and that was when I was friends with her. <laughs> so I haven't talked to her since. Um, but it, it seemed like there was a there was a, a group of people who were Amaji devotees within Jiva Mukti, and that was a kind of um, a subculture. A, a subculture within yeah. a subculture. Yeah, yeah a subculture. Yeah, yeah. A subculture. Uh -huh. Did you uh -huh. find that you um, that being with Amaji eventually pulled you away from Ashtanga yoga? I'm just wondering how your spiritual practice evolved, really. I feel like the whole time that I've done, that I've like kind of been involved in both, I've kind of been involved in both in tandem. Mm -hmm. um, I've never ever felt like I had to quote choose, so to speak, really. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think that might be a lot have to do with how drastically different the approaches are, right, um, yeah. you know, and then I felt like both sides of what Amma was providing for me and what Ashtanga was providing for me um, were things that I both needed. And I felt like mm -hmm. it was a, it was a perfectly okay and good balance. I never, ever felt like there was ever any sort of a conflict. I spent mm -hmm. many years on my travels to India when I would, study intensively in Mysore, um, I would always end up in at Amartapuri too. Mm -hmm. I always felt yeah. like it was totally complimentary and relatively mm -hmm. easy to do both. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like and when I was in each particular environment, I was very much focused on that. Mm -hmm. But like it never ever felt like it was in conflict. Like I said, every time I whenever I was at the ashram, I always had time and space to do my Ashtanga practice. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, and there is in Mysore, there's um, a, 
ashram, the, like an affiliated ashram to Amma in Mysore. And right. she visits Mysore regularly. Yeah. So like yeah. I always felt it was fine. Completely fine. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any like associated devotional practices that that are prescribed, you know, by Amma that you should or could do if you choose to daily? Yeah, there's um a, a meditation practice that um mm-hmm. it's called an I am meditation practice that um you know that she has taught her devotees and it's a very mm-hmm. specific practice um uh that is kind of has some similarities to the Ashtanga practice because you know like there is a very set kind of a thing to do right know, like do this do this do this do this mm-hmm. you know there's like a pattern and a process of yeah. how you do it on a daily basis so yeah so there's that and that mm-hmm. can kind of you can or incorporate that into your practice they also um do different kinds of um yoga um practices and, yeah. and um, sequences as well there now that's relatively new i'd say that's within the last um maybe like 15 years or so they've 10 10 years i'd say not mm-hmm. even 15 like 10 years or so yeah. they've been do- incorporating that more like an asana practice um which sometimes i will kind of weave elements into my shanga practice and on like something like for example like moon days or rest days mm-hmm. that kind of thing yeah. Um, yeah it's a little bit less intense um and but in a way that i can still kind of connect kind of to my physical body yeah. on a given day yeah. yeah yeah beautiful so you can like kind of take her practice and do it before or after your asana practice and just incorporate it into your day right. whenever you know whenever yeah. you were in mysore or even back at home without it feeling like you're doing, you know, something totally like you were saying in conflict or, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. five hours of asana instead of two. <laughs> oh God, my body can't handle five hours of asana anymore, <laughs> ever. I don't know if it ever did. I think the, the last time we all saw each other, we were watching you perform with, uh, I'm going to say husband. Part- Steve. Yeah. Yeah. Husband your partner. Yeah. <laughs> And you guys were performing, I think you were performing with Amy Priya. Yeah, she and we was were there singing. with uh, Brett Porzio and a Jeff. Bunch of Jeff mm-hmm. uh, oh, in New York. Yes, that's Jeff right. Lewis. Like, it's the last little, time. And we had club. just done the big Sherat tour in New York. I think we were in the middle of the right. Sherat tour. We were right in the middle of the Sherat tour. <laughs> yeah, I think we were in the middle. I thought it was kind of crazy to do it right in the middle, but we did it anyway. There you go. Yeah. Thank and you I, for I think. <laughs> we were all kind of there, kind of like uh, doing the tour, doing Ashtanga yoga, the best of our ability. Um, and so has that continued for you? Are you still kind of, um, do you still feel like, was at that point, was there a deep connection for you with Ashtanga yoga? Or it, where are you now with it? Um, with regard to music, are you saying, or just in general? I, I mean, uh, the, your Ashtanga yoga practice. And, and what was your connection to it then? Where are you now? Okay, then, um, yeah, I mean, I was still that felt very connected to the community. Um, we had, I think all of us had been recently to India at that point. Yeah. Um, but um, obviously, I, I, well, I haven't been to India in like several years now. I went just pre-pandemic, um, mm-hmm. but I haven't been back since they've reopened the borders and the schools have, the shalas have reopened. Um, mm-hmm. 
but uh, let's see. Um, my relationship to the practice now, um, I still have a daily practice. Um, obviously, I, I, I have been uh, self-practicing for years now. Sadly, right. <laughs> I haven't been able to go and practice in a Mysore community as a practitioner for many years, mostly because of the fact that I'm a teacher and yeah, yeah, nobody exactly. teaches at four in the morning. So, no. <laughs> nor, nor, so should um, they. nor should they. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I, you know, I've been doing my practice pre teaching even yeah. before the pandemic. So obviously I continued that like what during the whole quarantine period. And, um, I still do that. Um, the thing that I guess I feel like has changed the most is my relationship to teaching. Um, mm. I, uh, I haven't really, um, basically quarantine had forced me to shut down my Mysore program. Um, <laughs> I literally taught the day before everything shut down. Um, and just, I was literally just kind of assuming things would get better and that I would teach the next day. And then all of a sudden we closed down the studio and we just stayed closed and stayed closed yeah. and stayed closed. So, um, I did teach virtually, um, mm -hmm. for about nine months or so. And mm -hmm. then when it really felt very real that COVID was going to keep things closed for quite some time and I would not be able to get back into the room the way I wanted to and teach mm -hmm. the way I wanted to teach. Um, yeah. I basically, I made the, that difficult and necessary decision to shut down my program. Mm -hmm. So I haven't really taught Meister style since, uh, now it's been like, let's see, what year are we in? 2022. 2020. The end of 2020. 2022. <laughs> 2022. Oh, my God. So I haven't taught Mysore in, in, in over two years, like yeah, virtually wow. or like in the physically mm -hmm. in the room. Mm -hmm. So it's been two years. It's been an interesting process. I specifically made that decision to do that. Um, and I did it for several reasons. Um, I felt like... Um, even before COVID, honestly, like I was, um, I experienced what I think a lot of teachers will um, get and understand um, this whole idea of um, burnout. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was just so physically taxed with being, having to get up that early, get my practice in and then teach for hours, six days mm -hmm. a week. And after doing that for like a good 10 to 15 years, Right. I was just like really to the point where I just couldn't, I was starting to seriously feel that I couldn't sustain it much longer um, yeah. physically in my body, not just like the lack of sleep or whatever, mm -hmm. but also just physically in my body. I was experiencing a lot of um, injuries uh, through teaching um, for that, at that intensity for over mm -hmm. the years. And this is one of those situations where the accumulation for me was not a good thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, like things did not escalate in a way that was good. And I knew mm -hmm. I had to make some changes. So I had already been considering it pre pandemic. Um, and then the pandemic, pandemic basically forced my hand. So yeah. 
the good news it's allowed me to like regain some of my physical health um but it was a very it was a sad very painful decision for me to make Mm, i completely understand that that feeling of of um, emotionally having to let go of a of an identity Mm -hmm. um I, I do remember something that Noah said to me early on, Noah Williams, mm-hmm. that, you know, your success as an Ashtanga yoga teacher is getting 50 students a day and then your back is broken from doing, from having that. Mm-hmm. And so achieving that is, is not, is not going to be physically very helpful. It's a hardship. No, not at all. And so it's kind of, it's kind of a tough, tough road to hoe. I think yeah. is or a tough hoe to row. Um, <laughs> I I don't I don't know if that's you can do that. I get um, it. <laughs> but um, uh, one thing I, I experienced recently because I've been I've been retired for about from being a shungi yoga teacher for the last like four or five years since mm-hmm. I've four years since I've been in um, Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to uh, sub my wife's ex husband's yoga class recently, <laughs> which was. Uh, and definitely an exercise in, in, um, open-mindedness. Um, Mm -hmm. going in there, I was so surprised by the sensation of being back in the room again. Mm. And I think I was a little sensitive to it and maybe, you know, post hashtag me too and post COVID, like very much aware Mm -hmm. of people's emotional bodies. It's something that I'd been, I felt like I had trained myself to be aware of, like you're there to kind of, if you're going to move someone's body, you're moving their emotional body first before you penetrate to the physical body. And I'm, I'm honestly the last month overwhelmed by the, the trauma informed body. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, a, it's emotionally exhausting being in the room and and feeling like what I'm moving, the habits that I'm moving are people who have closed their bodies because of trauma and now trying to open them up, up again. And Harmony suggested, well, maybe it's COVID traumatization, but I also feel like I'm, because is everyone in this world been abused? Mm. And now I'm, I'm, my job is to convince them to trust me to open up. Mm. And I, it's, um, Gosh, it's a it's a it's a it's a lot. It feels like a different energetic environment yeah. than pre-COVID, though. Mm-hmm. Um, it's For something sure. that I've even noticed teaching in person. You know, teaching Mysore in different schools is there's, yeah, there's a different feeling in held in the bodies that wasn't there before, and it's it's yeah. kind of fascinating. So I feel allowed to do the same stuff that I used to do. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I I haven't, um, I haven't been in a Mysore room to teach, but I have done um, some guided classes Mm -hmm. since um, I felt like I finally agreed and I decided that it was, I felt like it was safe enough to be in a room with people again. And I was very slow to the kind of just, the idea of saying yes to that again, much, I think, relatively speaking, much slower than a lot of teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it is interesting, sort of, because one thing that I'm noticing from everything that's happened is, um, I think students are a lot more sensitive and have mm-hmm. like a heightened awareness to mm-hmm. the aspect of a physical touch. 
Yeah. Um, but at the same time, they also desperately need it and want it. And mm. that's been a very interesting kind of line yeah. to balance. Yeah. Um, because in general, I find that um, it's harder to move them in just as a generalization. Yeah. But at yeah. the same time, whenever I ask them and I ask for permission, yeah, I ask for that consent from them. Mm-hmm. Like literally ninety nine percent of the time, the answer is like, "Oh God, yes, please, please, yeah. like yeah. adjust me. I really, I need that." Yeah. So, um, it's uh, and I think that that's a good thing for a teacher. Yeah. I think again, this whole other sense of challenge—it's another ch- new challenge in yeah. this world that we are living in now. Yeah. Um, mm. that's presented it itself for us to try to figure out how to get through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, if I, if I'm, you know, I'm, I do remember teaching in, or, you know, I was assisting guy when teaching in New York in, in 2000 and 2001, 2002, three, that it, there was a lot of crying. A lot mm-hmm. of people really, uh, because New York's a tough place to live. And so you're holding that in your body and then you're trying to let that out in the yoga class. Like there's a lot of tears that certainly in Taiwan, no one was really get. everyone was really relaxed there. <laughs> and it was not the same kind of hardship, especially the, the demographic that I was teaching. Um, and so maybe it's the same. I'm, I'm, I'm projecting into it, but it, it does seem, it just felt, it just feels different now. Maybe I'm more sensitive. I'm not sure. Maybe you're more sensitive too. Well, I definitely think taking a break will definitely change your yeah. whole perspective of anything. Like if you step back from anything, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, for a, a good a good significant amount of time, mm-hmm. like f- four years, like you did, like I did, like mm-hmm. when you if you go back to something again, it's going to feel very different. Yeah, and you have Just a very different perspective of it too, right? Absolutely, yeah. Because mm-hmm. you've changed also. <laughs> totally, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So what opened up for you since you let go of the MISO program? Where where are you up to these days? Well, you know, I still am teaching a little bit and mm-hmm. I'm just kind of just teaching just enough to feel that I'm just getting I back to that kind of initial excitement of teaching without mm-hmm. having any kind of like deep physical demands of my body um as well as just like I don't know to be totally honest just like that deep sense of responsibility for a student's practice um yeah mm-hmm. I very purposely like very much taken a detached attitude about it and mm-hmm. taught less so that I don't feel that sense of being somebody's like everything all week long, you know, because yeah. I just, that was another thing that was, I found also very hard for me emotionally towards the end. Like I would literally deny myself like vacations or breaks mm. because right. I felt bad for quote, leaving the students. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and I'm, because of that, I was just completely just come losing all my sense of self and all of my energy. And, um, so that's something that I'm, I'm very kind of aware of keeping in check as far as teaching now, nowadays. Mm -hmm. Um, so Mm -hmm. I'm just doing, um, some light teaching and, um, 
since then, I've also started working, and this again goes back full circle back to our original conversation. I started working in dance again. For uh, I, I, one thing we can backtrack a little bit on is that I, um, before I started teaching yoga, in addition to actually physically dancing, I was doing a lot of work, kind of just behind the scenes in the dance world, um, mm-hmm. you know, like doing touring, production, administration, that kind of thing. So I've gotten back to that. I realized no matter how old I am, I can still do that. Um, No matter how (laughs) injured my body is, I can still do that. And I can still spend time with that community, which was, I guess, my first community back in when I first moved to New York. Um, And so I've been working um, in, in that capacity again. Uh, also a little bit part-time. I've been excited about that. Um, Mm -hmm. And no, doing music. We're still doing music. You're back to playing shows now in person. Yeah, we're just, uh, again, we were in California for about two weeks, two and a half weeks or so. And I got to, I, I ran out and I escaped for one day to go see Peter Oh, yeah. oh, he was teaching Peter there, Sanson, right? Nice. Yeah. yeah. So I got to and have a really lovely practice with Peter, and that <laughs> that made me very, very happy. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I was able to escape for a day. Nice. Um, and, um, yes, yeah, so we're still doing some shows here locally in New York, and then also um, upstate, like up in, you know, just like in the – in the kind of Catskills area and in, mm-hmm. in uh, New York. And then also we taken since COVID when things started happening again, we took two trips down South oh. to the Southern States. And so, yeah, we're kind of trying to, nice. I'm trying to find like a little bit of cluster of time to do a little bit of everything. Hopefully. Yeah. Can you, can you describe that? Uh that journey of starting to become a professional musician as a, as a bassist and, and how that, that got you to performing shows? Well, I think that when I decided to actively do less dancing um, mm-hmm. and I got much more deep into my yoga practice, um, like that pretty much took up all of my focus and time and energy in the early stages where mm-hmm. I was spending a lot of time in India and just, just really, really focusing on that. Um, but then I think after a few years of that, um, you sort of start to kind of figure out what's missing, so to speak. Mm. And what was missing for me was a creative element. That was mm. the, that whole aspect of creation was missing for me. Um, and, um, it just sort of organically happened that I got more into music. I had kind of been, uh, like. I played music casually, like just for fun as a recreational activity over the years. And then when I met my partner, my husband, Steve, um, he is a professional musician and that's what he does full time. I just started just naturally, just because I spent so much time with him. I started just doing music more again. Mm -hmm. And then from there, it just evolved into us just kind of like playing music at home to actually writing songs at home and eventually like him asking me to do like little guest appearances for him like when he was performing to and now it's sort of has become like actual physical 
records like we're like five records in now and wow. actually like taking the time off from other things like yoga and <laughs> um other things here that are based in new york to actually like being a musician for a while like for wow. periods of time and so. can you describe so the the genre that you all work within um to the the way that we can describe it, I mean, well, we we just honestly, we love every kinds of music. Like when we originally started writing and started our group, um, it was more kind of like an indie group, I, I guess, because that's what we were listening to. But over time, we've evolved and sort of started spending a lot more time down south and in Appalachia. And our music has sort of evolved into more of a kind of like a a folk Americana like roots type sound, I suppose, if you have to describe it in any particular way. Um, So, cause uh, yeah, but you know, it definitely, it's all over the place because we love all kinds of music and it's good to have an open mind and an open ear if you're a musician. So um, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, there's a pretty big range. Yeah, I was thinking about you the other day because we had this this podcast coming up, and I was I was listening to Karang Bin, and they have you know such a lovely bassist, you know in that in that band, and you know, the, and I was thinking about you being a, a bassist in your band, and and kind of coming to it. Um, I was, yeah, I was just, um, it's really it's really amazing seeing someone evolve out of out of yoga into something else, creative. So I think so many of us were creatives evolving into yoga. You're, yeah. You're kind of on both ends of the spectrum. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, honestly, it feels like it makes the most sense in the world to me because I'm yeah. all about, I really like, I, I'm a f- firm believer of, of things kind of coming full circle. Yeah. And then um, I hopefully on when you come out on the other side, you're older and wiser and you do it better the second time around. So I, that's, that's, I'm very hopeful for that as far as like what happens, like moving forward for the rest of my life. Hopefully. Yeah. 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 Oh, I love it. So beautiful. Well, I think this was just such an amazing story. I love your story. I love that you shared so much um, depth and richness about your practice and how it's evolved and, your teaching and also like the dance and the music and you Amma. really seem like, so a, like a fully beautiful. fleshed out human being like you really oh, well oh, thank god <laughs> thank god it's working it's thank you it was yeah. fun i had a good time and i and i missed you guys so it was a good yeah. it was nice to be able to catch up as well we miss yeah, you too. Absolutely. Yeah. When when could someone when could someone see you perform? When's the next time um, they could do that? When is the next time we're performing? We're doing a couple of shows um, in the winter time with some friends of ours, some other local musician friends of ours. Um, in the winter months, we'll be staying specifically since we just got back from California. We'll stay grounded here for a bit, like through the end of the year, through the holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There'll be some. Uh, more touring happening in 2023. Uh, nothing huge until probably the spring. I think right now what we're trying to focus on, I think, and I think you guys can probably relate to this too, as 
the kind of the winter starts setting in, we start to get a little bit more insular. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to try to shift our focus less on playing out and performing, but more on just kind of songwriting and working on the next record. Nestling. And, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Nice. Beautiful. And, and if people are in the New York area or in the Brooklyn area, they can find you teaching your classes. Yeah, I, I, yes, I teach um, at two studios, two local studios run by two really amazing women. Um, in one of them is in Fort Greene and the other one is in Bushwick. Okay, mm-hmm. good. Beautiful. Wow. Well, thank you so much for being our guest today. It was a delight and a pleasure as yeah. always to connect with you. It's just, yeah, it's just nice being to... able to hang out with old friends. Yeah. That's why you started the podcast, right, Parmeni? That's just right. So it is. Hang out with your... Just to connect with people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just close your eyes for a moment and imagine. Imagine energy that lasts all day. Imagine falling asleep and staying asleep and waking up feeling just amazing, free from pain. Imagine waking up excited to start your day. I know sometimes, you know, in the middle ages of your life, the middle stages of your life, things change, hormones shift, your body's changing, you know, whether it's headaches or just feeling exhausted all the time or insomnia, thoughts racing, you know, you're left dreaming back to a time when you felt great, when you felt younger. You've always been a high achiever, but it feels like now maybe your body, your mind are failing you. Nothing seems to get you going anymore. Nothing is sticking. You're trying everything. Maybe you've, you know, made goals for yourself. You've tried to get up early. You've tried to maybe even stay up late or get to bed earlier and nothing's really working for you. And you feel like you're losing that connection to yourself. You're losing your deeper spiritual connection. I understand. I went through this too. And that's why I'm taking my 20 plus years of experience using meditation, using yoga practices, using all of my experimentations with diet and nutrition, um, and I'm combining them into an amazing program where we're looking at Ayurveda as well as other practices such as creating positive intelligence in your life, mantra, um, pranayama, as well as just reevaluating, reassessing, reframing different areas of your life. Um, I'm customizing my program so that it aligns with you and your needs and your lifestyle so that you can truly, truly feel good again. Um, I'm so excited to just be offering this four-month coaching program. It's uh, unique to each individual, although there are specific topics that I've designed for each week where we can work together to integrate and implement certain concepts or certain practices or maybe just certain observations, you know, noticing what's going on. Because awareness is really the first key to shifting anything in your life. So um, 
it's it's a wonderful program. People have had wonderful results at reaching their goals, at feeling a complete change in how they're relating to themselves, their loved ones, their relationships are better, they're more aligned with who they are, with their purpose, they're more connected to what they want and know the steps in how to get it and how to get there. They feel like they're recognizing themselves again. They're feeling good in their bodies. They're getting their energy back and reconnecting to what brings them joy, creativity, um, feeling focused, and having great results. And I would just invite you to come into my coaching container, come in and have these conversations with me so that we can really get you to where you want to be, you know, get you out of that unexplained pain, reduce those headaches, decrease your feelings of fatigue or your lack of interest in life, you know, get you again connected to what's bringing you passion and joy and feeling energized so that you can Make the second half of your life the best half, the most brilliant, focused, most in love part of your life. You know, I think it's so, so important to stop and take a pause, you know, somewhere in that middle point when you feel like you're losing yourself, you're no longer your 20 year old self, and you're not yet your 60 or 70 year old self, you know, it's like this really powerful, powerful moment of transition, transitioning from a young girl or a young woman into a wise sage. And how are we going to connect to this sage within us? How are we going to you know, become that woman that we want to be, that wise, inspired, full of zest, full of life, you know, loving her body, loving everything about her life, full of energy, vibrant self. Um, and if we don't actually take that pause in that moment to um, plan, to envision, to figure out what it is that's going to move us from where we are here, maybe feeling confused, feeling exhausted, feeling like you're, you've lost yourself to um, that place where you know you have that deeper connection with your highest, wisest self, and you're feeling completely tuned in spiritually. Um, if we don't take the pause, we will never get there. You know, life and time pass quickly, as we all know. And it's important to figure out what is truly important to you, what's truly going to move the dial to get you to that next level, that next place, that next dream, you know, to make your dream come alive. So I hope that you want to come and dream and plan and reconnect to your spiritual self, your physical self, and uh, your, even your mind, you know, train, retrain your mind, your mental habits to have this complete uh, mind, body, spirit makeover. And you can do that inside my coaching container, harmonyslater.com. Click on coaching, apply now, and book your free call with me today. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to connect with you and see what I can do to help enrich the quality, the experience of your life going forward. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's
Oh